Hello and welcome to the Thinky Thinks Podcast. This is Matthew, as always, and always being for the first time. It's going to be the first real podcast, I guess, where I offer some commentary of my own. Not a whole lot, but some. Um, This is going to be on Sam Harris's The Moral Landscape. I'm going to kind of summarize. Um, I would say analyze, but not so much. Mostly, mostly summarize here. This is a thick, like not, not physically really. It's only about 200 pages, but it's uh, some dense material good material and um, valuable material. It's pretty unique, novel. No one else has really come up with anything like this that I know of. Uh, A lot of scientists are um, that Sam is friends with, like uh, Richard Dawkins, are like, oh, this is is great, uh, and Stephen Pinker making them think a little. They they like it. I don't know how much they agree, but um, it's getting some some good reviews. Lots of negative reviews by people who maybe haven't even really read it. Um, and well. We're about to get into it, but uh, before we get to that, I'd like to say now that I'm now that I'm talking and doing summaries and um, gonna really start participating in the podcast, I would like to give uh, you guys my info so you can contact me if you have uh, questions, comments requests, uh, book requests even, or um, questions about about the book, and, or about anything, and I'll find a book on that or find something to answer. You, uh, if there's big requests, use email. It's going to be, I'll have it in the description, email uh, matthewcfaust at gmail dot com and Instagram is actually uh, the only social media I really use, but I check it pretty regularly. So uh, you can add and message me on there if you can find me. I'll link how to find me there. Probably put my name in, but um, you can ask me questions there too. So, here it is, the my first uh, kind of real episode where I'll actually do something other than just read, even though this is mostly reading, and yeah. Thanks, guys. Okay, let's get started. This is a tall task in front of me today. I'm going to try to... Uh, summarize for you guys 
The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. This is his most recent book. He has a, he has a new uh, book coming out this month, but this one's 2010. Um, I'll read, I'm going to read some of the, like the back of the book. Sam Harris's first book, The End of Faith, ignited a worldwide debate about the validity of religion. In the aftermath, Harris discovered that most people, from religious fundamentalists to non-believing scientists, agree on one point. Science has nothing to say on the subject of human values. Indeed, our failure to address questions of meaning and morality through science has now become the primary justification for religious faith. In this highly controversial book, Sam Harris seeks to link morality to the rest of human knowledge, defining morality in terms of human and animal well-being. Harris argues that science can do more than tell us uh, than tell how we are. It can in principle tell us how we ought to be. In his view, moral relativism is simply false and comes at an increasing cost to humanity. And the intrusions of religion into the sphere of human values can be finally repelled. For just as there is no such thing as Christian physics or Muslim algebra, there can be no Christian or Muslim morality. Using his expertise in philosophy and neuroscience, along with his experience on the front lines of our culture wars, Harris delivers a game-changing book about the future of science and about the real basis of human cooperation. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that uh, that summary, but it gives an idea. Uh, Sam Harris is a neuroscientist and the author of the New York Times bestsellers The End of Faith, winner of the Penn Award for Nonfiction, and A Letter to a Christian Nation. His writing has appeared in Newsweek, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Times, London, the Boston Globe, the Atlantic, the Annals of Neurology, uh, Foreign Policy, and many other publications. Dr. Harris holds a degree in philosophy from Stanford University and a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA. He is a co-founder and chairman of the Project Reason. Please visit his website at www.samharris.org. And here's some other uh, quotes from reviews. Uh, I was one of those who had unthinkingly bought into the hectoring myth that science can say nothing about morals. To my surprise, the moral landscape has changed all that for me. It should change it for philosophers, too. Philosophers of mind have already discovered that they can't duck the study of neuroscience, and the best of them have raised their game as a result. Sam Harris shows that the same should be true of moral philosophers, and it will turn their world exhilaratingly upside down. As for religion, and preposterous idea that we need God to be good, nobody wields a sharper bayonet than Sam Harris. Richard Dawkins, University of Oxford. Uh, Sam Harris breathes intellectual fire into an ancient debate. Reading this thrilling, audacious book, you feel the ground shifting beneath your feet. Reason has never had a more passionate advocate. 
in McEwen. And lively, provocative, and timely, Harris makes a powerful case for a morality that is based on human flourishing and thoroughly enmeshed with science and rationality. It is a tremendously appealing vision and one that no thinking person can afford to ignore. Steven Pinker, professor of psychology at Harvard University, author of How the Mind Works and The Blank Slate. So this is uh, Sam Harris, How Science Can Determine Human Values, The Moral Landscape, a New York Times bestseller. Um, I am going to have not so much commentary on this as be working really hard to get the ideas across because they're they're just packed with um with excellent quotes and information so and i'm not a neuroscientist and i'm not really qualified to comment too much so um yeah let's just get a summary kind of going all right. Introduction, the moral landscape. I'm just going to read the first um, couple paragraphs. The people of Albania have a venerable tradition of vendetta called kanun. If a man commits a murder, his victim's family can kill any one of his male relatives in reprisal. If a boy has the misfortune of being the son or brother of a murderer, he must spend his days and nights in hiding, foregoing a proper education, adequate health care, and the pleasures of a normal life. Untold numbers of Albanian men and boys live as prisoners of their homes even now. Can we say that the Albanians are morally wrong to have structured their society in this way? Is their tradition of blood feud a form of evil? Are their values inferior to our own? Most people imagine that science cannot pose, much less answer questions of this sort. How could we ever say, as a matter of scientific fact, that one way of life is better or more moral than another? Whose definition of better or moral would we use? While many scientists now study the evolution of morality, as well as its underlying neurobiology, the purpose of their research is merely to describe how human beings think and behave. No one expects science to tell us how we ought to think and behave. Controversies about human values are controversies about which science officially has no opinion. I will argue, however, that questions about values, about meaning, morality, and life's larger purpose are really questions about the well-being of conscious creatures. Values, therefore, translate into facts that can be scientifically understood. Regarding positive and negative social emotions, retributive impulses, the effects of specific laws and social institutions on human relationships, the neurophysiology of happiness and suffering, etc. The most important of these facts are bound to transcend culture, just as facts about physical and mental health do. Cancer in the highlands of New Guinea is still cancer. Cholera is still cholera. Schizophrenia is still schizophrenia. And so, too, 
I will argue compassion is still compassion, and well-being is still well-being. That's the first couple of paragraphs. He's getting, laying the groundwork here. Now I'm just going to go through and kind of read some of the main quotes here um, to get the idea. The more we understand ourselves at the level of the brain, the more we will see that there are right and wrong answers to the questions of human values. While the argument I make in this book is bound to be controversial, it rests on a simple premise. Human well-being entirely depends on events in the world and on states of the human brain. I am not suggesting that we are guaranteed to resolve every moral controversy through science. Differences of opinion will remain, but opinions will be increasingly constrained by facts. And it is important to realize that our inability to answer a question says nothing about whether the question itself has an answer. Exactly how many people were bitten by mosquitoes in the last 60 seconds? How many of these people will contract malaria? How many will die as a result? Given the technical challenges involved, no team of scientists could possibly respond to such questions. And yet we know that they admit of a simple numerical answers. Does our inability to gather the relevant data oblige us to respect all opinions equally? Of course not. In the same way, the fact that we may not be able to resolve specific moral dilemmas does not suggest that all competing responses to them are equally valid. There are, for instance, 21 U.S. states that still allow corporal punishments in their schools. These are places where it is actually legal for a teacher to beat a child with a wooden board hard enough to raise large bruises and even to break the skin. Um, this has gone down by a couple. I think it's like 17 or 19 or something now since this since 2010 when this was published. Uh, continuing, hundreds of thousands of children are subjected to this violence each year. However, if we are actually concerned about human well-being and would treat children in such a way as to promote it, we might wonder whether it is generally wise to subject little boys and girls to pain, terror, and public humiliation as a means of encouraging their cognitive and emotional development. Is there any doubt that this question has an answer? Is there any doubt that it matters that we get it right? In fact, all the research indicates that corporal punishment is a disastrous practice, leading to more violence and social pathology, and perversely, to greater support for corporal punishment. But the deeper point is that there simply must be answers to questions of this kind, whether we know them or not. Religious conservatives tend to believe that there are right answers to questions of meaning and morality, but only because the God of Abraham deems it so. Scriptural literalism, intolerance of diversity, mistrust of science, disregard for the real causes of human and animal suffering. Too often, this is how the division between facts and values expresses itself on the religious right. Secular liberals, on the other hand, tend to imagine that no objective answers to moral questions exist. Multiculturalism, moral relativism, political correctness, tolerance even of intolerance, 
These are the familiar consequences of separating facts and values on the left. It should concern us that these two orientations are not equally empowering. Increasingly, secular democracies on the left supine before the unreasoning zeal of old-time religion. The scientific community is predominantly secular and liberal, and the concessions that scientists have made to religious dogmatism have been breathtaking. The scientific community's reluctance to take a stand on moral issues has come at a price. It has made science appear divorced, in principle, from the most important questions in human life. The defense, the defense one most often hears for belief in God is not that there is compelling evidence for his existence, but that faith in him is the only reliable source of meaning and moral guidance. Mutually incompatible religious traditions now take refuge behind the same non-sequitur. My goal is to convince you that human knowledge and human values can no longer be kept apart. The world of measurement and the world of meaning must eventually be reconciled. The new section is called Facts and Values. The 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume famously argued that no description of the way the world is, facts, can tell us how we ought to behave, morality. Following Hume, the professor G.E. Moore declared that any attempt to locate moral truths in the natural world was to commit a naturalistic fallacy. Other influential philosophers, including Karl Popper, have echoed Hume and Moore on this point, and the effect has been to create a firewall between facts and values throughout our intellectual discourse while psychologists and neuroscientists now routinely study human happiness, positive emotions, and moral reasoning, they rarely draw conclusions about human beings, how human beings ought to think or behave in light of their findings. In fact, it seems to be generally considered intellectually disreputable, even vaguely authoritarian, for a scientist to suggest that his or her work offers some guidance about how people should live. Many readers might wonder how we can base our values on something as difficult to define as well-being. It seems to me, however, that the concept of well-being is like the concept of physical health. It resists precise definition, and yet is indispensable. In fact, the meanings of both terms seem likely to remain perpetually open to revision as we make progress in science. Today, a person can consider himself physically healthy if he is free of a detectable disease, able to exercise, and destined to live into his 80s without suffering obvious decrepitude. But this standard may change. Being able to walk a mile on your 100th birthday will not always constitute health. There may come a time when not being able to run a marathon at age 500 will be considered a profound disability. Such a radical transformation of our view of human health would not suggest that current notions of health and sickness are arbitrary, merely subjective, or culturally constructed. Indeed, the difference between a healthy person and a dead one 
is about as clear and consequential a distinction as we ever make in science. If we define good as that which supports well-being, as I will argue we must, the regress initiated by Moore's open question argument really does stop. Um, a part we kind of skipped there, so um, don't worry about Moore's open question argument. But uh, he says, while I agree with Moore that it is reasonable to wonder whether maximizing pleasure in any given instance is good, it makes no sense at all to ask whether maximizing well-being is good. Um, so here, um, Sam reaches a point where he describes the bad life and the good life. This one is kind of the basis of understanding his moral landscape here. So, um, that there must be a way to scientifically determine things, um, morality, if we are using well-being as a guide because clearly there is such thing as a good life and a bad life. So I'm going to read this whole section called The Good Life and the Bad Life. The Bad Life and the Good Life. For my arguments about the moral landscape to hold I think one need only grant two points. Some people have better lives than others, and two, these differences relate in some lawful and not entirely arbitrary way to states of the human brain and to states of the world. To make these premises less abstract, consider two generic lives that lie somewhere near the extremes on this continuum. The bad life. You are a young widow who has lived her entire life in the midst of civil war. Today, your seven-year-old daughter was raped and dismembered before your eyes. Worse still, the perpetrator was your 14-year-old son, who was goaded to this evil at the point of a machete by a press gang of drug-addled soldiers. You are now running barefoot through the jungle with killers in pursuit. While this is the worst day of your life, it is not entirely out of character with the other days of your life. Since the moment you were born, your world has been a theater of cruelty and violence. You have never learned to read, taken a hot shower, or traveled beyond the green hell of the jungle. Even the luckiest people you have known have experienced little more than an occasional respite from chronic hunger, fear, apathy, and confusion. Unfortunately, you've been very unlucky, even by these bleak standards. Your life has been one long emergency, and now it is nearly over. The good life. You are married to the most loving, intelligent, and charismatic person you have ever met. Both of you have careers that are intellectually stimulating and financially rewarding. For decades, your wealth and social connections have allowed you to devote yourself to activities that bring you immense personal satisfaction. One of your greatest sources of happiness has been to find creative ways to help people who have not had your good fortune in life. In fact, you have just won a billion-dollar grant 
to benefit children in the developing world, if asked, you would say that you could not imagine how your time on Earth could be better spent. Due to a combination of good genes and optimal circumstances, you and your closest friends and family will live very long, healthy lives untouched by crime, sudden bereavements, and other misfortunes. The examples I have picked, while generic, are nonetheless real, in that they represent lives that some human beings are likely to be leading at this moment. While there are surely ways in which this spectrum of suffering and happiness might be extended, I think these cases indicate the general range of experience that is accessible in principle to most of us. I think it is indisputable that most of what we do with our lives is predicated on there being nothing more important at least for ourselves and for those closest to us, than the difference between the bad life and the good life. Okay. These are basically, as what he calls the moral landscape, is um, kind of a landscape of well-being. So a peak on this landscape like a hill or a mountain, is the highest reaches of good well-being caused by what well, we should investigate the morals that are that are causing that um, that high well-being. And he would, I guess, he would say these are peaks and valleys too. Like this, this good life is one of the highest attainable peaks on this landscape and the bad life is one of the lowest depths of a valley which can be achieved on the moral landscape and continuing anyone who doesn't see that the good life is preferable to the bad life is unlikely to have anything to contribute to a discussion about human well-being if we were to discover, to discover a new tribe in the Amazon tomorrow, there is not a scientist alive who would assume a priori that these people must enjoy optimal physical health and material prosperity. Rather, we would ask questions about this tribe's average lifespan, daily calorie intake, the percentage of women dying in childbirth, the prevalence of infectious disease, the presence of a material culture, etc., such questions would have answers, and they would likely reveal that life in the Stone Age entails a few compromises. And yet news that these jolly people enjoy sacrificing their firstborn to imaginary gods would prompt any, even most, anthropologists to say that this tribe was in possession of an alternate moral code every bit as valid and impervious to refutation as our own. The disparity between how we think about physical health and mental societal health reveals a bizarre double standard. One that is predicated on our not knowing, or rather on our pretending not to know anything at all about human well-being. So obviously he's arguing here that um, if something's clearly causing worse well-being, well, then we need to admit that it's the the way of life that's causing such worse well-being are bad things 
And if it's a set of morals that's causing worse well-being, then we shouldn't be afraid to say that these are worse morals. And continuing further. Okay, looks like that's everything I've marked for the introduction. We've reached chapter one, Moral Truth. And here's the intro. Many people believe that something in the last few centuries of intellectual progress prevents us from speaking in terms of moral truth and therefore from making cross-cultural moral judgments or moral judgments at all. Having discussed this subject in a variety of public forums, I have heard from literally thousands of highly educated men and women that morality is a myth. I don't think one has fully enjoyed the life of the mind until one has has seen a celebrated scholar defend the contextual legitimacy of the burqa or a female genital mutilation a mere 30 seconds after announcing that moral relativism does nothing to diminish a person's commitment to making the world a better place. Science can, in principle, help us understand what we should do and should want and therefore what other people should do and should want in order to live the best lives possible. My claim is that there are right and wrong answers to moral questions, just as there are right and wrong answers to questions of physics. And such answers may one day fall within the, uh, the reach of maturing sciences of mind. Note that he doesn't say that, um, that we, science can answer these now. He says... Such answers may one day fall within the reach of maturing sciences of mind. So um, his argument is commonly caricaturized as, um, as we can determine everything now and, and then attacked. That, and then that straw man argument is attacked. Well, he's not saying that. He's saying... Sci there are clearly scientific answers, most of which we can't answer today, but we should be studying uh, the, the mind in, in order to learn how to make, how to answer such questions, and we should be answering the easy questions that we can answer, and naturally getting better at it until we can answer harder and harder questions. And just because we can't answer the hard questions doesn't mean we shouldn't use science to answer any at all. Continuing. Science should increasingly enable us to answer specific moral questions. For instance, would it be better to spend our next billion dollars eradicating racism or malaria? Which is generally more harmful to our personal relationships? white lies, or gossip. Such questions may seem impossible to get a hold of at this moment, but they may not stay that way forever. As we come to understand how human beings can best collaborate and thrive in this world, science can help us 
find a path leading away from the lowest depths of misery and toward the, hei the heights of happiness for the greatest number of people. It seems to me, however, that the most educated secular people, and this includes most scientists, academics, and journalists, believe that there is no such thing as moral truth, only moral preference, moral opinion, and emotional reactions that we mistake for genuine knowledge of right and wrong. Um, given that there are facts, real facts, to be known about how conscious creatures can experience the worst possible misery and the greatest possible well-being, it is objectively true to say that there are right and wrong answers to moral questions, whether or not we can always answer these questions in practice. I know some of the, a lot of these quotes are kind of overlapping, but this is, this is his point, so... Um, if you put these, all these in so much, I don't want to just um, completely skip over the the ideas, the the main idea, even if I've kind of read it already. So, um, truth has nothing in principle to do with consensus. One person can be right, and everyone else can be wrong. Consensus is a guide to discovering what is going on in the world but that is all that it is. Its presence or absence in no way constrains what may or may not be true. There are surely physical, chemical, and biological facts about which we are ignorant or mistaken. In speaking of moral truth, I am saying that there must be facts regarding human and well-being about which we can also be ignorant or mistaken. In both cases, science and rational thought generally is the tool we can use to uncover these facts. Religious conceptions of moral law are often put forward as counterexamples. For when asked why it is important to follow God's law, many people will cannily say, for its own sake. Of course, it is possible to say this, but this seems neither an honest nor a coherent claim. What if a more powerful God would punish us for eternity for following Yahweh's law. Would it then make sense to follow Yahweh's law for its own sake? The inescapable fact is that religious people are as eager to find happiness and to avoid misery as anyone else. Religious notions of morality, therefore, are not exceptions to our common concern for well-being. There are people who claim to be highly concerned about morality and human values, but when we see that their beliefs cause tremendous misery, nothing need prevent us from saying that they are misusing the term morality or that their values are distorted. How, can we, uh, how have we convinced ourselves that, on the most important questions in human life, all views must count equally? Consider the Catholic Church an organization which advertises itself as the greatest force for good and as the only true bulwark against evil in the universe. Even among non-Catholics, its doctrines are widely associated with the concepts of morality and human values. However, the Vatican is an organization that excommunicates women for attempting to become priests, but does not excommunicate male priests for raping children. It, it excommunicates doctors who perform abortions to save a mother's life. Even if the mother is a nine-year-old girl raped by her stepfather and pregnant with twins, 
and he has a uh, that marked as he has a source for it in the back that I'm not going to go for but he has marked it that he has a uh, source for this particular case he's not just making that up out of his head but it did not excommunicate a single member of the Third Reich for committing genocide are we really obliged to consider such a diabolical inversion of priorities to be evidence of an alternative moral framework no it seems clear that the Catholic Church is as misguided in speaking about the moral peril of contraception, for instance, as it would be in speaking about the physics of transubstantiation. In both domains, it is true to say that the Church is grotesquely confused about which things in this world are worth paying attention to. However, many people will continue to insist that we cannot speak about moral truth or anchor morality in a deeper concern for well-being because concepts like morality and well-being must be defined with reference to specific goals and other criteria, and nothing prevents people from disagreeing about these definitions. I might claim that morality is really about maximizing well-being, and that well-being entails a wide range of psychological virtues and wholesome pleasures, but someone else will be free to say that morality depends upon worshiping the gods of the Aztecs and that well-being, if it matters at all, entails always having a terrified person locked in one's basement waiting to be sacrificed. Everyone has an intuitive physics, but much of our intuitive physics is wrong with respect to the goal of describing the behavior of matter. Only physicists have a deep understanding of the laws that govern the behavior of matter in the universe. I think that's I think that's a, even quite an understatement about physics. The advanced physics is extremely counterintuitive. Um, I mean, our perceptions that that we use, even just the most basic things, we we see things as solid. And as we all know, who have even gone through high school, solid, even solid things are almost entirely made of empty space. So even even at the most basic level, physics is, can be extremely counterintuitive. Continuing, I am arguing that everyone also has an intuitive morality, but much of our intuitive morality is clearly wrong with respect to the goal of maximizing personal and collective well-being. And only genu genuine moral experts would have a deep understanding of the causes and conditions of human and animal well-being. Yes, we must have a goal to define what counts as right or wrong when speaking about physics or morality, but this criterion visits us equally in both domains. And yes, I think it is quite clear that members of the Taliban are seeking well-being in this world, as well as hoping for it in the next one, but their religious beliefs have led them to create a culture that is almost perfectly hostile to human flourishing. Whatever they think they want out of life, like keeping all women and girls subjugated and illiterate, they simply do not understand how much better life would be for them if they had different priorities. A universe in which all conscious beings suffer the worst possible misery is worse than a universe in which they experience well-being. 
This is from his section called The Worst Possible Misery for Everyone. This is the basic idea where he says, if you're still not convinced that um, that well-being is can't be relative, well, the the universe with the worst possible mis- misery for everyone, whatever it takes for everyone to be the most miser- miserable, is um, the worst universe. Right? Um, anything is. Any other conditions are better than that. So, and there must be a way to measure this. To measure upward from that. Like, we want to get further and further from the worst um, state of the universe, which is the most miserable. And that's how he says, clearly, this, this must be scientific if there's a baseline. It seems uncontroversial to say that a man and a woman alone on Earth would be better off if they recognized their common interests, like getting food, building shelter, and defending themselves against larger predators. If Adam and Eve were industrious enough, they might realize the benefits of exploring the world, begetting future generations of humanity, and creating technology, art, and medicine. Are there good and bad paths to take across this landscape of possibilities? Of course. In fact, there are, by definition, paths that lead to the worst misery and paths that lead to the greatest fulfillment possible for these two people. Why would the difference between right and wrong answers suddenly disappear once we add 6.7 billion more people to this experiment? Do pigs suffer more than cows do when we, uh, when being led to slaughter? Would humanity suffer more or less on balance if the United States unilaterally gave up all its nuclear weapons? Questions like, they, like these are very difficult to answer, but this does not mean that they don't have answers. The difficulty of getting precise answers to certain moral questions does not mean that we must hesitate to condemn the morality of the Taliban, not just personally, but from the point of view of science. The moment we admit that we know anything about human well-being scientifically, we must admit that certain individuals or cultures can be absolutely wrong about it. Moral relativism is clearly an attempt to pay intellectual reparations for the crimes of Western colonialism, ethnocentrism, and racism. This is, I think, the only charitable thing to be said about it. I hope it is clear that I am not defending the idiosyncrasies of the West uh, West as any more enlightened in principle than those of any other culture. Rather, I am arguing that the most basic facts about human flourishing must transcend culture, just as most other facts do. In his wonderful book, The Blank Slate, Stephen Pinker includes a quotation from the anthropologist Donald Simmons that captures the problem of multiculturalism especially well. 
Okay, here we have a bit of Inception, I guess. we. This is Sam Harris quoting Steven Pinker quoting Donald Simmons. If only one person in the world held down a terrified, struggling, screaming little girl, cut off her genitals with a septic blade, and sewed her back up, leaving only a tiny hole for urine and menstrual flow, the only question would be how severely that person should be punished and whether the death penalty would be a sufficiently severe sanction. But when millions of people do this, instead of the enormity being magnified millions fold, suddenly it becomes culture and thereby magically becomes less rather than more horrible and is defended by some Western moral thinkers, including feminists. Yeah, that's awful. Okay. Um, the There are academics who have built entire careers on the allegation that the foundations of science are rotten with biased, sexist, racist, and imperialist, etc. Here, Sam is responding to uh, modern critiques of science. Um, science is biased. Where kind of kind of liberal studies will sometimes come out and claim things like it's kind of it's kind of now what we would call woke culture i guess where people come out and start saying that kind of just being overly jumping on the bandwagon of anti-racism where obviously racism is a problem um they go and say things like scientific studies are completely skewed here uh, i'll continue on this uh on this reading and maybe it'll just make more sense than me trying to explain what he's saying because i don't it's apparently not that clear for me so the comp the composition of some branches of science is still disproportionately white and male one can reasonably wonder whether bias is the cause there are also legitimate questions to be asked about the direction and application of science in medicine for instance it seems clear that women's health issues have been sometimes neglected because the prototypical human being has been considered male one can also argue that the contributions of women and minority groups to science have occasionally been ignored or undervalued. The case of Rosalind Franklin standing in the shadows of Crick and Watson might be an example of this. But none of these facts alone or in combination, or however multiplied, remotely suggests that our notions of scientific objectivity are vitiated by racism or sexism. So the, yes, so the sexism and racism that goes on is, affects who gets credit for things and affects um, what kind of studies 
might be taking place, but it doesn't affect the rigor of the science itself in the way that is often claimed. Continuing, is there really such a thing as a feminist or multicultural epistemology? Harding's case, Harding being well, one of these critics, is not helped when she finally divulges that there is not just one feminist epistemology, but many. On this view, why was Hitler's notion of Jewish physics, or Stalin's idea of capitalist biology, anything less than a thrilling insight into the richness of epistemology? Should we now consider the possibility of not only Jewish physics, but of Jewish women's physics? How could such a balkanization of science be a step toward strong objectivity? And if political inclusiveness is our primary concern, where could such efforts to broaden our conception of scientific truth possibly end? Scientists tend to have an unusual aptitude for complex mathematics, and anyone who doesn't cannot expect to make such uh, much of a contribution to the field. Why not remedy the situation as well? Why not create an epistemology for physicists who failed calculus? Why not be bolder still and establish a branch of physics for people suffering from debilitating brain injuries? Who could reasonably expect that such efforts at inclusiveness would increase our understanding of a phenomenon like gravity? As Steven Weinberg once said regarding similar doubts about the objectivity of science, you have to be very learned to be that wrong. Indeed, one does and many are. Yeah, so the name of inclusiveness um, pushes people to kind of poor critiques of science. Unscientific critiques of science, we might say. Haha. Okay. Continuing... And here we are at the kind of conclusion to the chapter here. Some people think physics includes or validates practices like astrology, voodoo, and homeopathy. These people are, by all appearances, simply wrong about physics. In the United States, a majority of people, 57%, believe that preventing homosexuals from marrying is a moral imperative. However, if this belief rests on a flawed sense of how we can maximize our well-being, such people may simply be wrong about morality. What will it mean for us to acquire a deep, consistent, and fully scientific understanding of the human mind? While many of the details remain unclear, the challenge is for us to begin speaking sensibly about right and wrong, and good and evil, given that we already know about our world, given what we already know about our world. Such conversation seems bound to shape our morality and public policy in the years to come. That is the end of chapter one. Okay, continuing on to chapter two called Good and Evil. This one has a lot about human intuition and the wacky and even embarrassing failures um, 
in understanding how our intuitions can be just plain wrong and be important to understanding how and why it can be so difficult to either understand good or even to do what we know is good. Excuse me. Often the way information is presented manipulates the brain and leaves us when... Hmm. I wrote down a note here that I can't read. (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, let's just move on. I had written down a little bit there because I'm not actually going to read the end, the first few paragraphs of this one. Got to kind of skip along. Here's a good section. It says, I believe that we will increasingly understand good and evil, right and wrong, in scientific terms, because moral concerns translate into facts about how our thoughts and behaviors affect the well-being of conscious creatures like ourselves. If there are facts to be known about the well-being of such creatures, and there are, then there must be right and wrong answers to moral questions. What, go- uh, what would our world be like if we ceased to worry about right and wrong or good and evil and simply acted so as to maximize well-being, our own and that of others? Would we lose anything important? And if important, wouldn't it be, by definition, a matter of someone's well-being? The first moral view is truer than the second. If the first entails a more accurate understanding of the connections between human thoughts, intentions, behavior, and well-being... Does forcing women and girls to wear burqas make a net positive contribution to human well-being? Does it produce happier boys and girls? Does it produce more compassionate men or more contented women? Does it make for better relationships between men and women, between boys and their mothers, or between girls and their fathers? I would bet my life that the answer to each each of these questions is no. So I think with many scientists. And yet, as we have seen, most scientists have been trained to think that such judgments are mere expressions of cultural bias, and thus unscientific in principle. Taking humanity as a whole, I am quite certain that there is a greater consensus that cruelty is wrong, a common moral precept, than that the passage of time varies with velocity, special relativity, or that humans and lobsters share a common ancestor, evolution. Should we doubt that whether there is a fact of the matter with respect to these physical and biological truth claims? Does the general ignorance about the special theory of relativity or the pervasive disinclination of Americans to accept the scientific consensus on evolution put our scientific worldview 
even slightly in question. As you can see, I think most of the um, people calling the book controversial is just the fact that maybe he makes a lot of people mad. <laughs> By pointing out um, the rationality of certain viewpoints. Mm, here's another. As the philosopher Patricia Churchland puts it, no one has the slightest idea how to compare the mild headache of five million against the broken legs of two, or the needs of one's own ch two children against the needs of a hundred unrelated brain-damaged children in Serbia. Such puzzles may seem mere of mere academic interest until we realize that population ethics governs the most important decisions societies ever make. It seems both rational and moral for our concern to increase with the number of lives at stake. But this is not how we characteristically respond to the suffering of other human beings. Uh, Slovic, uh, an ex a scientist who did an experiment, found that when given a chance to donate money in support of needy children, Subjects give most generously and feel the greatest empathy when told about only a single child's suffering. When presented with two needy cases, their compassion wanes. And this diabolical trend continues. The greater the need, the less people are emotionally affected and the less they are inclined to give. This is known as identifiable victim effect. Putting a face on the data will connect their constituents to the reality of human suffering and increase donations. Those are both things you probably heard about. But what's important is that they're we found these things through scientific study. They're not intuitive. And this is exactly the point he's making. The things we should do aren't quite the intuitive ones. And it's almost, well, it is embarrassing to find out how stupid we are in, in this way sometimes. We'll give less money to help more children who need it more. Clearly, one of the great tasks of civilization is to create cultural mechanisms that protect us from the moment-to-moment -moment failures of our ethical intuitions. Are there policies we could adopt that would make it easy for every person in the United States to help alleviate the problem of homelessness in their own communities? Is there some brilliant idea that no one has thought of that would make people want to alleviate the problem of homelessness more than they want to watch television or play video games? Would it be possible to design a video game they could help solve the problem of homelessness in the real world. Again, such questions open onto a world of facts, whether or not we can bring the relevant facts into view. A friend's four-year-old daughter recently observed the role that social support plays in making moral decisions. 
It's so sad to eat baby lammies, she said as she gnawed greedily on a lamb chop. So why don't you stop eating them, her father asked. Why would they kill such a soft animal? Why wouldn't they kill some other kind of animal? Because, her father said, people like to eat the meat, like you are right now. Her daughter reflected for a moment, still chewing her lamb, and then replied, It's not good, but I can't stop eating them if they keep killing them. And more difficult questions. Do we have a moral obligation to come to the aid of wealthy, healthy, and intelligent hostages before the poor, sickly, and slow-witted ones? After all, the former are more likely to make a positive contribution to society upon their release. And what about remaining partial to one's friends and family? Is it wrong for me to save the life of my only child if, in the process, I neglect to save a stranger's brood of eight. Wrestling with such questions has convinced many people that morality does not obey the simple laws of arithmetic. Such difficulties withstanding, it seems to me quite possible that we will one day resolve moral questions that are often thought to be unanswerable. I am naturally more concerned about her um, ah, his, his own daughter. I'm naturally more concerned about her than I am about the other children in the lobby. I do not, however, expect the hospital staff to share my bias. In fact, given time to reflect about it, I realize that I would not want them to. How could such a denial of my self-interest actually be in the service of my self-interest? Well, first... There are many more ways for a system to be biased against me than in my favor, and I know that I will benefit from a fair system far more than I will, uh, far more than from one that can be easily corrupted. I also happen to care about other people, and this experience of empathy deeply matters to me. I feel better as a person valuing fairness, and I want my daughter to become a person who shares this value. And how would I feel if the physician attending my daughter actually shared by my bias for her? and viewed her as far more important than the other patients under his care. Frankly, it would give me the creeps. Most of these I don't offer my commentary on because his is far more clever and insightful than, than mine, so I would look boring in comparison. As with many perceptual illusions, it may be impossible to see two circumstances as morally equivalent, even while knowing that they are. In such cases, it may be ethical to ignore how things seem, or it may be that the path we take to arrive at identical outcomes really does matter to us, and therefore that losses and gains will remain incommensurable. Incommensurable. There are two scenarios to consider. Couple A learned that their three-year-old daughter was inadvertently given a neurotoxin by the hospital staff. 
Before being admitted, their daughter was a musical prodigy with an IQ of 195. She has since lost all her intellectual gifts. She can no longer play music with any facility, and her IQ is now a perfectly average 100. Couple B learned that the hospital neglected to give their three-year-old daughter, who has an IQ of 100, a perfectly safe and inexpensive genetic enhancement that would have given her remarkable musical talent and nearly doubled her IQ. Their daughter's intelligence remains average, and she lacks any notable musical gifts. The critical period for giving this enhancement has passed. Obviously, the end result under either scenario is the same, but what if the mental suffering associated with loss is simply bound to be greater than the, that associated with forsaken gains? Under certain conditions, it is compassionate to prolong a person's pain unnecessarily so as to reduce his memory of suffering later on. Indeed, it might be unethical to do otherwise. Needless to say, this is a profoundly counterintuitive result. But this is precisely what is so important about science. It allows us to investigate the world and our place within it, etc. Um, I guess I'll read some of the experiment that, experiment that he's referring to. Um, or one of them. In psychology, it's known as the peak-slash-end rule. Testing this rule in a clinical environment, one group found that patients undergoing colonoscopies in the days when this procedure was done without anesthetic could have their perception of suffering markedly reduced and their likelihood of returning for a follow-up exam increased if their physician needlessly prolonged the procedure at its lowest level of discomfort by leaving the colon colonoscopy it's a weird word to read. Colonoscope inserted for a few extra minutes. The same principle seems to hold for aversive sounds and for exposure to cold. There's another interesting section. We have all met people who behave quite differently in business than in their personal lives. While they would never lie to their friends, they might lie without a qualm to their clients or customers. Why is this a moral failing? At the very least, it's vulnerable to what would be called a principle of the unpleasant surprise. Consider what happens to such a person when he discovers that one of his customers is actually a friend. Oh, why didn't you say you were Jennifer's sister? Uh, okay, don't buy that model. This one is a much better deal. Such moments expose a rift in a person's ethics that is always unflattering. People with two ethical codes are perpetually susceptible to embarrassments of this kind. They are also less trustworthy, and trust is a measure of how much a person can be relied upon to safeguard other people's well-being. Even if you happen to be a close friend of such a person, that is, on the right side of his ethics, 
You can't trust him to interact with others you may care about. I didn't know she was your daughter. I'm sorry about that. Or consider the position of a Nazi living under the Third Reich, having fully committed himself to exterminating the world's Jews, only to learn, as many did, that he was Jewish himself. Unless some compelling argument for the moral necessity of his suicide were forthcoming, we can imagine that it would be difficult for our protagonist to square his Nazi ethics with his actual identity. Clearly, his sense of right and wrong was predicated on a false belief about his own genealogy. And here's the important part. A genuine ethics... Excuse me. A genuine ethics should not be vulnerable to such unpleasant surprises. Another interesting experiment here for those who... Some, some may remember this one. Uh, consider the Monty Hall problem. Based on the television game show... Let's make a deal. Imagine that you are a contestant on a game show and presented with three closed doors. One, uh, behind one sits a new car and the other two conceal goats. Pick the correct door and the car is yours. The game proceeds this way. Assume that you have chosen door one. Your host then opens door two, revealing a goat. He now gives you a chance to switch your bet from door one to the remaining door three. Should you switch? The correct answer is yes. But most people find that this answer is very perplexing, as it violates the common intuition that, with the two unopened doors remaining, the odds must be one and two that the car will be behind either one of them. If you stick with your initial choice, however, your odds of winning are actually one in three. If you switch, your odds inc increase to two and three. It would be fair to say that the Monty Hall problem leaves many of its victims logically dumbfounded. Even when people understand conceptually why they should switch doors, they can't shake their initial intuition that each door represents a one out of two chance of success. This reliable failure of human reasoning is just that, a failure of reasoning. It does not suggest that there is no correct answer to the Monty Hall problem. There we have another unintuitive um, failure of the human brain, which can is solved by um, science or math. It seems abundantly clear that many people are simply wrong about morality, just as many people are wrong about physics, biology, history, and everything else worth understanding. All right, here he talks a little bit about the brain. Um, Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, as stated in the review. Um, and he's done a bunch of studies. So should add, I'm going to add a little bit of the part here where he talks about some of the brain. And there's a little more um, kind of 
scattered throughout the book where he supports his ideas with um, experiments and findings studying certain parts of the brain. So if it's a little technical, um, sorry, but it's, it's not too bad. It's uh, fairly interesting and insightful. Lateral regions of the frontal lobes seem to govern the indignation associated with punishing transgressors, while medial frontal regions produce the feelings of reward associated with trust and reciprocation. The medial prefrontal cortex, MPFC, is central to most discussions of morality and the brain. As discussed further in chapters 3 and 4, this region is involved with emotion, reward, and judgments of self-relevance. It also seems to register the difference between belief and disbelief. Injuries here have been associated with a variety of deficits, including poor impulse control, emotional blunting, and the attenuation of social emotions like empathy, shame, embarrassment, and guilt. When frontal damage is limited to the MPFC, that is, medial prefrontal cortex, reasoning ability as well as the conceptual knowledge of moral norms are, genu- are generally spared, but the ability to behave appropriately toward others tends to be disrupted. And uh, I add these because um, he's, he kind of he ties all this talking about the brain into um, suggesting that it can be studied, right? We can learn things about the effects of the brain, the way information's processed, and how that can affect choices and well-being, etc. So I think it's pretty important and interesting. In many cases, quite interesting, the effects of damaged parts of the brain can can produce in people. Here's a little section, The Illusion of Free Will. Um... Sam Harris has a another book. It's uh, another essay, much shorter than this book, just about something like sixty or seventy pages. Where he, it's it's called Free Will, but it is earlier than this book. So this kind of has a little summary and maybe an even slightly updated summary of what he talks about in that one, but. It's not, it's not a substitute, but um, still good. There's a couple facts in here. Uh, by merely glancing at your face or listening to your tone of voice, others are often more aware of your internal states and motivations than you are. And yet most of us still feel that we are the authors of our own thoughts and actions. Um, by the way, I'll add that this is I mean, science science tells us that free will is, in fact, an illusion. Uh, even even the self is kind of an illusion. There's 
we are tons of tiny organisms, mostly not even belonging to, you know, not even containing our own DNA, lots of parasites and bacteria and all kinds of weird stuff that makes us up. But even the parts that are us, all the cells are just little tiny creatures following instructions, and we feel that we are one thing. Um, but everything is really, um, you know, one action leads to another, and there's n there's not much evidence that we could ever choose anything differently than what we chose if we were rewound to the same position. And all the conditions of the universe were exactly the same. By all indications, we would have no choice but to... We would simply choose the same thing that we chose. Another continuing on here. For instance, the physiologist Benjamin Leibitt famously demonstrated that activity in the brain's motor regions can be detected some 350 milliseconds before a person feels that he has decided to move. Another lab recently used fMRI data to show that some conscious decisions can be predicted up to 10 seconds before they enter awareness. These are tests showing that scientists looking at the brain can tell when we're about to make a decision before we even know that we are about to make a decision. It's kind of incredible. As Daniel Dennett has pointed out, many people confuse determinism with fatalism. This gives rise to questions like, if everything is determined, why should I do anything? Why not just sit back and see what happens? But the fact that our choices depend on prior causes does not mean that they do not matter. If I had not decided to write this book, it wouldn't have written itself. Human choice, therefore, is as important as fanciers of free will believe. The freedom to do what one intends and not to do otherwise is no less valuable than it ever was. Uh, the belief in free will underwrites both the religious notion of sin and our enduring commitment to r retributive justice. The Supreme Court has called free will a universal and persistent foundation for our system of law, distinct from a deterministic view of human conduct that is inconsistent with the underlying precepts of our criminal justice system. From United States versus Grayson in 1980, sorry, 1978. And yes, that was from the Supreme Court statement. So a bit terrifying that the Supreme Court is basing, is claiming that the whole system is based on the idea of free will when science tells us that we quite conclusively do not have it. Even though effectively we can we can essentially pretend like we have it, um, that deterministic view is the the way it really is. 
So those things are either not distinct or the whole basis of the justice system is wrong. <laughs> If a person's actions seem to have been entirely out of character, this will influence our sense of the risk he now poses to others. If the accused appears unrepentant and anxious to kill again, we need entertain no notions of free will to consider him a danger to society. The men and women on death row have some combination of bad genes, bad parents, bad ideas, and bad luck. Which of these quantities exactly were they responsible for? No human being stands as an author to his own genes or his upbringing. And yet we have every reason to believe that these factors determine his character throughout life. Our system of justice should reflect our understanding that each of us could have been dealt a very different hand in life. In fact, it seems immoral not to recognize just how much luck is involved in morality itself. Imagine that a cure for evil exists. We can see that our retributive impulse is profoundly flawed. Consider, for instance, the prospect of withholding the cure for evil from a murderer as part of his punishment. Would this make any moral sense at all? What, would it, what could it possibly mean to say that a person deserves to have this treatment withheld? What if the treatment had been available prior to the person's crime? Would he still be responsible for his actions? It seems far more likely that those who had been aware of his case would be indicted for negligence. Would it make any sense at all to deny surgery to the man in example 5 as a punishment if we knew the brain tumor? This was the man who has a commits a crime because of a brain tumor. Um... Would it make any sense if we knew the brain tumor was the proximate cause of his violence? Of course not. This brings us to chapter 3. Belief. This one I think I have some less notes sent for, so should get through a little faster. There is no reason to think that any of our beliefs about the world are stored as propositions or within discrete structures inside the brain. Merely understanding a simple proposition often requires the unconscious activation of considerable background knowledge and an active process of hypothesis testing. The Oxford English Dictionary defines multiple senses of the term belief. The mental, uh, sorry, one, the mental action, condition, or habit of trusting to go, uh, trusting to or confiding in a person or thing, trust, dependence, reliance, confidence, faith. Two, mental acceptance of a proposition, statement, or fact is true. On the ground of authority or evidence, assent of the mind to a statement, or to the truth of a fact beyond observation, on the testimony of another, or to the fact or truth 
on the evidence of consciousness. The mental condition involved in this ascent. Three, the thing believed, the proposition or set of propositions held true. He says, definition two is exactly what we are after, and one may apply as well. These first two senses of the term are quite different from the data-centered meaning given in three. Considering the following claim, Starbucks does not sell plutonium. I suspect that most of us will be willing to wager a fair amount of money that this statement is generally true, which is to say that we believe it. However, before reading this statement, you are very unlikely to have considered the prospect that the world's most popular coffee chain might also trade in one of the world's most dangerous substances. Therefore, it does not seem possible for there to have been a structure in your brain that already corresponded to this belief, and yet you clearly harbored some representation of the word, the world that amounts to this belief. In this, in this chapter, Sam Harris is uh, shining some light here on the strangeness of our brains and thinking patterns. Perhaps most not notably, he points out that we cannot choose what to believe, as is sometimes foolishly claimed. Self-deception and wish-thinking occur, but they are not conscious choices. And continuing with more quotes from the chapter. The brain is an evolved organ, and there does not seem to be a process in nature that allows for the creation of new structures dedicated to entirely novel modes of behavior or cognition. Consequently, the brain's higher order functions had to emerge from lower order mechanics. An ancient structure like the insula, for instance, helps monitor events in our gut, governing the perception of hunger and primary emotions like disgust, but it is also involved in pain perception, empathy, pride, humiliation, trust, music appreciation, and addictive behavior. It may also play an important role in both belief formation and moral reasoning. Such promiscuity of function is a common feature of many regions of the brain, especially in the frontal lobes. That was, if um, difficult to understand there, uh, he was saying that there aren't certain regions of the brain for certain things. Uh, everything kind of like, like there's so many things going on in pinging off all different parts of the brain. So that's why there's always a giant list when he's like, this is connected to this, 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 and that. Um, parts of the brain are promiscuous in their functions. A good way of um, putting it, his words. The 17th century philosopher Spinoza thought that merely understanding a statement entails the tacit acceptance of its being true. 
while disbelief requires a subsequent process of rejection. Several psychological studies seem to support this conjecture. Understanding a proposition may be analogous to perceiving an object in physical space. We may accept appearances as reality until they prove otherwise. The behavioral data acquired in our research supports this hypothesis. A subject's judged statements to be true more quickly than they judged them to be false or undecidable. When we compared the mental states of belief and disbelief, we found that belief was associated with greater activity in the medial prefrontal cortex, MPFC. This region of the frontal lobes is involved in linking factual knowledge with relevant emotional associations. Um, the MPFC, that once again is medial prefrontal cortex, is also associated with ongoing reality monitoring. And injuries here can cause people to confabulate, to make patently false statements without any apparent awareness that they are not telling the truth. Even in judging the truth of emotionally neutral propositions, engaged regions of the brain that are strongly connected to the limbic system, which governs our positive and negative effect. Mathematical belief, such as 2 plus 6 plus 8 equals 16, showed a similar pattern of activity to ethical belief. So there's no um, difference in the brain between believing uh, judgment values and um, mathematical statements. It also suggests, oh, he says that right here, suggests that the division between facts and values does not make much sense in terms of underlying brain function. From the point of view of the brain, believing the sun is a star is importantly similar to believing cruelty is wrong. How can we then say that scientific and ethical judgments have nothing in common? Okay. There are some things that we are just naturally bad at. And the mistakes people tend to make across a wide range of reasoning tasks are not mere errors. They are systematic errors that are strongly associated both within and across tasks. As one might expect, many of these errors decrease as cognitive ability increases. We also know that training, using both examples and formal rules, mitigates many of these problems and can improve a person's thinking. It is also true that the less competent a person is in a given domain, the more he will tend to overestimate his abilities. Conversely, those who are more knowledgeable about a subject tend to be acutely aware of the greater expertise of others. This creates a rather unlovely asymmetry in public discourse. One often finds people with no scientific training 
speaking with apparent certainty about the theological implications of quantum mechanics, cosmology, or molecular biology. While it is a standard rhetorical move in such debates, this is a, a theological debates against, or, sorry, whenever scientists debate religious apologists. Um, while it is standard rhetorical move to accuse scientists of being arrogant, the level of humility in scientific discourse is, in fact, one of its most striking characteristics. In my experience, arrogance is about as common at a scientific conference as nudity. At any scientific meeting, you'll find presenter after presenter couching his or her remarks with caveats and apologies when asked to comment on something that lies to either side of the very knife edge of their special expertise. Even Nobel laureates will say things like, well, this isn't really my area, but I would like or I would suspect that X is, or I'm sure there are several people in this room who know more about this than I do, but as far as I know, X is. The totality of scientific knowledge now doubles every few years. Given how much there is to know, all scientists live with the constant awareness that whenever they open their mouths in the presence of other scientists, they are guaranteed to be speaking to someone who knows more about a specific topic than they do. And more error in human processing here. For instance, merely reminding people of the fact of death increases their inclination to punish transgressors and to reward those who uphold cultural norms. One experiment showed that judges could be led to impose especially harsh penalties on prostitutes if they were simply prompted to think about death prior to their deliberations. Interestingly, um, this is the kind of thing that can be used, well, in advertising, obviously, to manipulate people. So, so some of this science already exists because we know how to manipulate people in in ways in strange counterintuitive ways here. But on a little bit of an aside that Sam doesn't talk about in this book, that is the same kind of issue that we talk about today with AI, like algorithms manipulating humans because if their goal is to um, whatever their goal is they can accidentally figure out strange patterns that make that goal easier for them so, so take for example the easiest example here is YouTube su uh, video suggestion algorithms that they those uh, learn they they give you suggestions based on what they think you want to watch because their given goal is to get you to watch the most videos to spend the most time watching videos on YouTube therefore 
um, they they accidentally found ways to manipulate people that were they weren't written into the code. They were just algorithms that are um, that that are learning machine learning algorithms. So the YouTube video search algorithm found finds that um, making people more radical in their views gets them to watch or, or makes it easier to predict what videos they like. So instead of just giving you videos and completely guessing what you like, it will kind of accidentally kind of push you toward more radical like political videos because if it can if it can get you to start clicking on um something like um you know interest like hate speech uh videos okay then it it makes it really easy to predict that you want to watch more of those so it can try it will accidentally try to get you to watch things that have many related videos that are easy to then give you more of and this is the kind of manipulation that could result from something like reminding people of death increases their inclination to punish transgressors and reward those who uphold cultural norms right if there was some AI given a task and it found that um, it, it has to interact with humans and it found that images of death make it easier for this action to take place. It could show you pictures of, if it happens to show you a picture of death or remind you of death, and suddenly its task is easier. And we're just totally being manipulated. Okay, that was a long aside. Let's get back to the actual book here. Subjects were asked to judge whether it was morally correct to sacrifice the life of one person to save 100, while being given subtle clues as to the races of the people involved. Conservatives proved less biased by race than liberals, and therefore more even-handed. Liberals, as it turns out, were very eager to sacrifice a white person to save 100 non-whites, but not the other way around, all while maintaining that considerations of race had not entered into their thinking. The point, of course, is that science increasingly allows us to identify aspects of our minds that cause us to deviate from norms of factual and moral reasoning. Norms which, when made explicit, are generally acknowledged to be valid by all parties. If a person's primary motivation in holding a belief is to hew a positive state of mind, to mitigate feelings of anxiety, embarrassment, or guilt, for instance. This is precisely what we mean by phrases like wishful thinking and self-deception. People differ significantly with respect to risk tolerance, and these differences appear to be governed by a variety of genes, including genes for the D4 dopamine receptor and the protein stathmin. 
people who have inherited the most active form of the D4 receptor are more likely to believe in miracles and to be skeptical of science. The least active forms correlate with rational materialism. So that's kind of, that's very interesting and I don't know. It's terrifying, I guess. I don't know. This means that this the studying of the brain is really interesting because it shows that eventually the the brain when we know enough can be manipulated. We already have medicines, right? We already mess with these kinds of choices and we assume it's okay to help people not be depressed so that they don't commit suicide so they can take care of their family. Why not help them, um, you know, not believe false things or etc. Where does this, is, is there anything immoral about this? If we're doing things just to promote well-being, The logic of our language allows us to ask, was that gunfire, but not, was that a noise? This seems to be a contingent fact of neurology, rather than an absolute constraint upon logic. So our brains cause us to think this way. It's not, it's not completely, it's not illogical to think that way. It's just that our brains don't work that way, so we would never say that. A synesthete, for instance, who experiences crosstalk between his primary senses, seeing sounds, tasting colors, etc., might be able to pose the latter question without any contradiction. How the world seems to us depends upon facts about our brains. That is very interesting insight. It is worth reflecting on what a reasoning bias actually is. A bias is not merely a source of error. It is a reliable pattern of error. Every bias, therefore, reveals something about the structure of the human mind. Now a section called A World Without Lying. I think that very notable here is that uh, Sam has what I believe to be his most commendable and remarkable work uh, is a book, another very short book and essay called Lying, in which he gives a very firm case for why uh, no one should ever lie, including white lies and including deception and it's, you know, maybe my favorite thing that I've, that I've read, and I absolutely agree with it. So, um, and, and why it's, I mean, it never even benefits the person who's lying to lie in the long run. That's what's kind of incredible. And, um, I, I plan on putting out a reading of that, of that one too, but, um, I, it's excellent, and 
I suggest, or it has my recommendation if it sounds like something you'd like in your library. Um, especially if I put out my reading and you hear it and you like it, give the publisher money for publishing it. Uh, secondly here, he's going to mention Bill Clinton in a second. And that brings up another book that I should mention. Christopher Hitchens. Uh, fantastic takedown of Bill Clinton called No One Left to Lie to, The Triangulations of William Jefferson Clinton. Uh, and that one's hilarious and cutting and um, not enough can be said about just Christopher Hitchens as an author and as a kind of moral badass, I guess. So, uh, now I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Let's go. Yeah, um, just be aware this, this section is no substitute for the, for Sam's essay on this, which is very worth reading. When evaluating the social cost of deception, we need to consider all of the misdeeds, premeditated murders, terrorist atrocities, genocides, Ponzi schemes, etc., that must be nurtured and shored up at every turn by lies. Viewed in this wider context, deception commends itself, perhaps even above violence, as the principal enemy of human cooperation. Imagine how our world would change if, when the truth really mattered, it became impossible to lie. What would international relationships, relations be like if every time a person shaded the truth on the floor of the United Nations, an alarm went off throughout the building? The forensic use of DNA evidence has already made the act of denying one's culpability for certain actions comically ineffectual. Recall how Bill Clinton's cantanas... Uh, cantatas of indignation were abruptly silenced the moment he learned that a semen-stained duress was en route to the lab. The mere threat of a DNA analysis pr produced what no grand jury ever could, instantaneous communication with the great man's conscience, which appeared to be located in another galaxy. We can be sure that a dependable method of lie detection would produce similar transformations on far more consequential subjects. The development of mind-reading technology is just beginning, but reliable lie detection will be much easier to achieve than accurate mind-reading, whether or not we ever crack the neural code, enabling us to download a person's private thoughts, memories, and perceptions without distortion. We will almost surely be able to determine to a moral certainty whether a person is representing his thoughts, memories, and perceptions honestly in conversation. The development of a re reliable lie detector would only require a very modest advance over what is currently possible through neuroimaging. Rather than spirit criminal defendants and hedge fund managers off to the lab for, discon for a disconcerting hour of brain scanning, 
There may come a time when every courtroom or boardroom will have the requisite technology discreetly concealed behind its wood paneling. Thereafter, civilized men and women might share a common presumption that whatever important conversations are held, the truthfulness of all participants will be monitored. Well-intentioned people would happily pass between zones of obligatory candor, and these transitions will cease to be remarkable. Just as we've come to expect that certain public spaces be free of nudity, sex, loud swearing, and cigarette smoke, and now think nothing of the behavioral constraints imposed upon us whenever we leave the privacy of our homes, we may come to expect that certain places and occasions will require scrupulous truth-telling. Sorry for the awkwardness of that sentence. Just as we come to expect some things, we expect that certain places and occasions require truth-telling. Many of us might no more feel deprived of the freedom to lie during a job interview or at a press conference than we currently feel deprived of the freedom to remove our pants in the supermarket. Some scholars have already begun to worry that reliable lie detection will constitute an infringement of a person's Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. However, the Fifth Amendment has already succumbed to advances in technology. The Supreme Court has ruled that defendants can be forced to provide samples of their blood, saliva, and other physical evidence that may incriminate them. Will neuroimaging data be added to this list, or will it be considered a form of forced testimony? Diaries, emails, and other records of a person's thoughts are already freely admissible as evidence. In fact, the prohibition against compelled testimony itself appears to be a relic of a more superstitious age. It was once widely believed that lying under oath would damn a person's soul for eternity, etc. All very interesting. And we move on several pages. While I may want to believe otherwise, I simply cannot overlook the incessant pairing of the name George Washington with the phrase First President of the United States in any discussion of American history. If I wanted to be thought an idiot, I could profess some other belief, but I would be lying. This is, of course, on um, on not being able to choose what we believe as some critics of Sam have said that, oh, you know, wish thinking is a valid form of thinking, but we can, we of course can't really choose what we believe. We, we can only accidentally think things because we want it to be that way. But once we realize that, we can't really believe it. I think he'll talk more about that one cannot say that water is h2o or that lying is wrong simply because one wants to think that way to defend such propositions one must invoke a deeper principle to believe that x is true or that y is ethical is also to believe others should share those beliefs under similar circumstances 
the answer to the question, what should I believe and why should I believe it, is generally a scientific one. Belief, believe a proposition because it is well supported by theory and evidence. Believe it because it has been experimentally verified. Believe it because a generation of smart people have tried their best to falsify it and failed. Believe it because it is true or seems so. This is a norm of cognition as well as the core of any scientific mission statement. As far as our understanding of the world is concerned, there are no facts without values. And this takes us to chapter four, called Religion. This is where he has he's touched on a little bit of religion, but I think this might be where to, to steal yourself if you're faint of heart and religious, because... He's a famous atheist. He's gonna, there's going to be some bashing involved. Okay. Marx, Freud, and Weber, along with innumerable anthropologists, sociologists, historians, and psychologists influenced by their work, expected religious belief to wither in light of modernity. It has not come to pass. Religion re remains one of the most important aspects of human life in the 21st century. While most developed societies have grown predominantly secular, with the curious exception of the United States, Orthodox religion is in florid bloom throughout the developing world. In fact, humanity seems to be growing proportionally more religious as prosperous non-religious people have the fewest babies. When one considers the rise of Islamism, Islamism throughout the Muslim world, the explosive spread of Pentecostalism throughout Africa, and the anomalous piety of the United States, it becomes clear that religion will have geopolitical consequences for a long time to come. Within a rich nation like the United States, high levels of socioeconomic inequality may dictate levels of religiosity generally associated with less developed and less secure societies. In addition to being the most religious of developed nations, the United States also has the greatest economic inequality. The poor tend to be more religious than the rich, both within and between nations. 57% of Americans think that one must believe in God to have good values and to be moral. And 69% want a president who is guided by strong religious beliefs. It is true that most religions offer a prescribed response to specific moral questions. The Catholic Church forbids abortion, for instance. But research on people's responses to unfamiliar and moral dilemmas suggests that religion has no effect on moral judgments that involve weighing harms against benefits. And, uh, and on almost every measure of societal health, the least religious count countries are better off than the most religious. Countries like 
Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and the Netherlands, which are the most atheistic societies on earth, consistently rate better than religious nations on measures like life expectancy, infant mortality, crime, literacy, GDP, child welfare, economic equality, economic competitiveness, gender equality, healthcare, investments in education, rates of university enrollment, internet access, environmental protection, lack of corruption, political stability, and charity to poorer nations, etc. The independent researcher Gregory Paul has cast further light on this terrain by creating two scales, the successful society scale and popular religiosity versus secularism scale, which offer greater support for a link between religious conviction and societal insecurity. And there is another finding which may be relevant to this variable of societal insecurity. Religious commitment in the United States is highly correlated with racism. While the mere correlation between societal dysfunction and religious belief does not tell us what the connection is between them, these data should abolish the ever-present claim that religion is the most important guarantor of societal health. They also prove conclusively that a higher level of unbelief need not lead to the fall of civilization. And another fairly long passage here. The following passage, taken from The Profession of Faith by the Roman Catholic Church, represents the relevant case and illustrates the kind of assertions about reality that lie at the heart of most religions. I likewise profess that in the Mass a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice is offered to God on behalf of the living and the dead, and that the body and the blood together with the soul and the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, is truly, really, and substantially present in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist. And there is a change of the whole substance of the bread into the body, and the whole substance of the wine into blood. And this change the Catholic Mass calls transubstantiation. I also profess that the whole and entire Christ and a true sacrament is received under each separate species. That was a passage taken, again, from the Profession of Faith of the Roman Catholic Church. There is, of course, a distinction to be made between mere profession of such beliefs and actual belief, a distinction that, while important, makes sense only in a world in which some people actually believe what they say they believe. There seems little reason to doubt that a significant percentage of human beings, likely a majority, falls into this latter category with respect to one or another religious creed. What is surprising from a scientific point of view is that 42% of Americans believe that life has existed in its present form since the beginning of the world, and another 21% believe that while life may have evolved, its evolution has been guided by the hand of God. Only 26% believe in evolution through natural selection. 78% of Americans believe that the Bible is the word of God, either literal or inspired, and 79% of Christians believe that Jesus Christ 
will physically return to Earth at some point in the future. How is it possible that so many millions of people believe these things? Clearly, the taboo around criticizing religious beliefs must contribute to their survival. Remember that this is from 2010, now 10 years ago. Um, the numbers have gone down a little, but not that much, maybe 5%, definitely not more than 10%. More people who believe in evolution. I think it's around 5%. The relevance of the brain's dopaminergic systems to religious experience, belief, and behavior is suggested by several lines of evidence, including the fact that several clinical conditions involving the neurotransmitter dopamine, mania, obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, and schizophrenia are all regularly associated with hyper-religiosity. Serotonin has also been implicated, etc. Whatever the evolutionary underpinnings of religion, it seems extraordinarily unlikely that there is a genetic explanation for the fact that the French, Swedes, and Japanese tend not to believe in God while Americans, Saudis, and Somalis do. Clearly, religion is a matter of what people teach their children to believe about the nature of reality. Religious thinking was associated with greater signal in the anterior insula and the ventral stri striatum. The anterior insula has been linked to pain perception, to the perception of pain in others, and to negative feelings like disgust. The ventral striatum has been frequently linked to reward. This is um, talking about a test that he and his colleagues did, which is interesting, very easy to imagine if religious people have been constantly kind of indoctrinated with thoughts of the afterlife, rewards and punishments, and feelings like disgust. Are they... Um, could be higher than other types of thinking. And continuing further. Is there a conflict between marriage and infidelity? The two regularly coincide. The fact that intellectual honesty can be confined to a ghetto in a single brain in an institution or in a culture does not mean that there isn't a perfect contradiction between reason and faith or between the worldview of science taken as a whole and those advanced by the world's great and greatly discrepant religions. And skipping over many things as usual. Here's another. 
um, th- at this point, he's has been a large portion of refuting um, Francis Collins, the famous excellent scientist. Um, did some uh, some great work with DNA, the Human Genome Project, head of the Human Genome Project that was huge success um, but wrote a wrote a book and basically thinking or on the idea that um, religion and science can go together perfectly fine which Sam is highly critical of and critical of his thinking and critical of the double standards of the science magazines like Nature who or which have uh, published Collins' work uh, writings on the subject and um, fairly intellectually dishonest uh, works on the subjects where they're extremely critical of anyone who writes anything of equal value that isn't about religion. So Sam's a kind of very critical of the double standard only being there for in favor of religion and not in favor of any other ideas. They they hold very high rigor to what they publish. Um unless it's um, religious and they tread very lightly, you know, and it's, that bothers him. What if mice show greater distress at the suffering of familiar mice than unfamiliar ones? They do. What if monkeys will starve themselves to prevent their cage mates from receiving painful shocks? They will. What if chimps have a demonstrable sense of fairness when receiving food rewards? They have. What if dogs do too? Ditto. Would these be precisely, wouldn't these be precisely the sorts of findings one would expect if our morality were the product of evolution? This is uh, one of his refutations of one of the what he calls intellectually dishonest arguments of Collins. And that strikes me as a complete refutation as well of C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity premises, which is probably, quite honestly, where Collins gets his ideas, because in the evangelical echo chamber, that it is C.S. Lewis who is the hero, you know, the intellectual hero, but has very flawed, as uh, so flawed that Christopher Hitchens doesn't even really address him, he simply calls him incredibly naive and says like one thing about in his entire book. Continuing on, rather often, a belief in souls leaves people indifferent to the suffering of creatures thought not to possess them. 
There are many species of animals that can suffer in ways that three-day-old human embryos cannot. The use of apes in medical research, the exposure of whales and dolphins to military sonar, these are real ethical dilemmas with real suffering at issue. Concern over human embryos smaller than the period at the end of this sentence, when for years they have constituted one of the most promising contexts for medical research, is one of the many delusional products of religion that has led to an ethical blind alley and to terrible failures of compassion. For instance, there are a variety of conditions that can occur during gestation, the remedy for which entails the destruction of far more developed embryos, and yet these interventions offer less, offer far less potential benefit to society. Curiously, no one objects to such procedures. Then he describes how um, a child can be born with his underdeveloped but living twin lodged inside him called fetus and fetu. Uh, often not discovered or occasionally not discovered until years after birth. And second twin can also be a disorganized mass called a teratoma. Needless to say, any parasitic twin, however disorganized, will be a far more developed entity than an embryo at the 150-cell stage. Even the intentional sacrifice of, a, of one conjoined twin to save the other has occurred in the United States. So there's a strange double standard there. And then talking about Collins more. He, Collins, considers embryos created through SCNT, uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer, to be distinct from those formed through the union of sperm and egg because the former are, quote, not part of God's plan to create a human individual, unquote. While um, the latter is very much part of God's plan carried out through the millennia by our species and many others, unquote. What is to be gained in a serious discussion of bioethics by talking about God's plan? If such embryos were brought to term and became sentient and suffering human beings, would it be ethical to kill these people and harvest their organs because they had been conceived apart from God's plan? This is the type of intellectual dishonesty that he, that I'm saying he's been complaining about. That one's very clear. Uh, and more description here. When I criticized Pre President Obama's appointment of Collins in the New York Times, many readers considered it an overt expression of intolerance. For instance, the biologist Kenneth Miller claimed in a letter to the editor that my view was purely the product of my own deeply held prejudices against religion, and that I opposed Collins merely because he is a Christian. Writing in The Guardian, Andrew Brown called my criticism of Collins a fantastically illiberal and embryonically totalitarian position that goes against every pro possible notion of human rights and even the American Constitution. 
Miller and Brown clearly feel that unjustified beliefs and disordered thinking should not be challenged as long as they are associated with a mainstream religion, and that to do so is synonymous with bigotry. And here's the, the problem. They are not alone. There is now a large and growing literature spanning dozens of books and hundreds of articles attacking Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, and me, the so-called new atheists, for our alleged incivility bias and ignorance of how sophisticated believers practice their faith. It is often said that we caricature religion, taking its most extreme forms to represent the whole. We do no such thing. We simply do what a paragon of sophisticated faith like Francis Collins does. We take the specific claims of religion seriously. I mean, yeah, so far all of his, everything he's read from has been actual, you know, Catholic church doctrine, which many non-Catholic Christians will um, find Catholics ridiculous, but everyone finds every other denomination ridiculous, as any former Christian knows. Uh, so it's very easy to say that, oh, they're fundamentalist, or that's a caricature of religion, that's not how I believe But it's, he's not taking caricatures. And wrapping up the chapter. The fact that certain people can reason, reason poorly with a clear conscience, or can do so while saying that they have a clear conscience, proves absolutely nothing about the compatibility of religious and scientific ideas, goals, or ways of thinking. It is possible to be wrong and to know it. We call this ignorance. It is possible to be wrong and to know it, but to be reluctant to incur the social cost of admitting this publicly. We call this hypocrisy. And it may also be possible to be wrong, to dimly glimpse this fact, but to allow the fear of being wrong to increase one's commitment to one's erroneous beliefs. We call this self-deception. It seems clear that these frames of mind do an unusual amount of work in the service of religion. There is an epidemic of scientific ignorance in the United States. This isn't surprising, as very few sci scientific truths are self-evident, and many are deeply counterintuitive. It is by no means obvious that empty space has structure, or that we share a common ancestor both with the housefly and the banana. It can be difficult to think that a scientist, even we have begun to see, I'm uh, sorry, to think like a scientist, even we have begun to see when one is a scientist. But it would seem that few things make thinking like a scientist more difficult than an attachment to religion. And the final chapter, I believe. Is the future of happiness.
this is the intro. No one has ever mistaken me for an optimist. And yet when I consider one of the more pristine sources of pessimism, the moral development of our species, I find reasons for hope. Despite our perennial bad behavior, our moral progress seems to me unmistakable. Our powers of empathy are clearly growing. Today we are surely more likely to act for the benefit of humanity as a whole than at any point in the past. Of course, the 20th century delivered some unprecedented horrors, but those of us who live in the developed world are becoming increasingly disturbed by our capacity to do one another harm. We are a lot less tolerant of collateral damage in times of war, undoubtedly because we now see images of it and we are less comfortable with ideologies that demonize whole populations, justifying their abuse or outright destruction. Consider the degree to which racism in the United States has diminished in the last hundred years. Racism is still a problem, of course, but the evidence of change is undeniable. Most readers will have seen photos of lynchings from the first half of the 20th century, in which whole towns turned out as though for a carnival, simply to enjoy the sight of some young man or woman being tortured to death and strung up on a tree or lamppost for all to see. These pictures often reveal bankers, lawyers, doctors, teachers, church elders, newspaper editors, policemen, even the occasional senator and congressman, smiling in their Sunday best, having consciously posed for a postcard photo under a dangling, lacerated, and often partially cremated person. Such images are shocking enough, but realize that these genteel people often took souvenirs of the body, teeth, ears, fingers, kneecaps, genitalia, and internal organs, home to show their friends and family. Sometimes they even displayed these ghoulish trophies in their places of business. Consider the following response to boxer Jack Johnson's successful title defense against Jim Jeffries, the so-called Great White Hope. It's apparently a poem titled, A Word to the Black Man. Do not point your nose too high. Do not swell your chest too much. Do not boast too loudly. Do not be puffed up. Let not your ambition be inordinate, or take a wrong direction. Remember you have done nothing at all. You are just the same member of society you were last week. You are on no higher plane, deserve no new consideration, and will get none. No man will think a bit higher of you, because your complexion is the same of that of the victor at Reno. A modern reader can only assume that this dollop of racist hatred appeared on a leaflet printed by the Ku Klux Klan. On the contrary, this was the measured opinion of the editors at the Los Angeles Times exactly a century ago. Is it conceivable that our mainstream media will ever again give voice to such racism? We will embarrass our descendants just as our ancestors embarrass us. This is moral progress.
I am painfully aware, however, that we are living in a time when Muslims riot by the hundreds of thousands over cartoons. Catholics oppose condom use in villages decimated by AIDS. And one of the few moral judgments guaranteed to unite the better part of humanity is that homosexuality is an abomination. And yet I can detect moral progress even while believing that most people are profoundly confused about good and evil. All right, that was all basically a big chunk. The first two and a half pages. The assumption that the mind is the product of the brain is integral to almost everything neuroscientists do. Is physicalism a matter of philosophy or neuroscience? The answer may depend upon where one happens to be standing on a university campus. If I am correct, science has a, fair, has a far wider purview than many of its practitioners suppose, and its findings may one day impinge upon culture in ways that we do not expect. You can see this is kind of summing up, because his point is clear. He thinks we can um, use science for more moral detection, for things like detecting lying in courtrooms, like he already said, and in all the brain studies. I think it's he's almost certainly correct about a great many of his uh, claims and insights so far. I believe that conservatives have the same morality as liberals do. They just have different ideas about how harm accrues in this universe. There is also some research to suggest that conservatives are more prone to feelings of disgust, and this seems to especially influence their moral judgments on the subject of sex. More important, whatever the differences between liberals and conservatives may or may not be, if my argument about the moral landscape is correct, one approach to morality is likely more condu conducive to human flourishing than the other. Once again, reshading there must be a... If one's better and one's... Or even if there's two ways of thinking, one has to be to some degree better and one has to be to some degree worse, even if they're very... Uh, Similar. Two mountains can be very high or two valleys very low, but one is, um, if we look close enough, going to be slightly different from the other one. Is economics a true science yet? Judging from recent events, it wouldn't appear so. Perhaps a deep understanding of economics will always elude us. But does anyone doubt that there are better and worse ways to structure an economy? And, summing up, this is the final paragraph of the chapters, well, of the book. There is an afterword. I may add on to the end after here, but this will be... This is the end of the book. Oh, goodness. How obnoxious. I apologize.
Okay. This book was written in the hope that as science develops, we will recognize its application to the most pressing questions of human existence. For nearly a century, the moral relativism of science has given faith-based religion that great engine of ignorance and bigotry a nearly uncontested claim to being the only universal framework for moral wisdom. As a result, the most powerful societies on earth spend their time debating issues like gay marriage when they should be focused on problems like nuclear proliferation, genocide, energy uh, energy security, climate change, poverty, and failing schools. Granted, the practical effects of thinking in terms of a moral landscape cannot be our only reason for doing so, we must form our beliefs about reality based on what we think is actually true. But few people seem to recognize the dangers posed by thinking that there are no true answers to moral questions. If our well-being depends upon the interaction between events in our brains and events in the world, and there are better or worse ways to secure it, then some cultures will tend to produce lives that are more worth living than others. Some political persuasions will be more enlightened than others, and some worldviews will be mistaken in ways that cause needless human misery. Whether or not we ever understand meaning, morality, and values in practice, I have attempted to show that there must be something to know about them in principle, and I am convinced that merely admitting this will transform the way we think about human happiness and the public good. All right, there is The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. Thank you, guys.